This is Healthcare's Missing Logic Podcast, episode number 164. Today's special guest is Dr. Shelley Cohen Conrad, and we discuss resilience in extraordinary times from an interprofessional lens. You won't want to miss this one. to Healthcare's Missing Logic podcast. This is the only podcast that shows you how to leverage polarity intelligence, an essential competency for healthcare leaders and the missing logic in healthcare so you can create healthy healing organizations and become a thriving, resilient, and unstoppable healthcare leader. We are your hosts, Tracy Christofferson and Michelle Troset. We've been best friends and colleagues for over 30 years. And during that time, we coached healthcare leaders across North America around how to create healthy healing organizations. Today, we coach healthcare leaders and leadership teams to live thriving, resilient, and balanced lives, combat burnout, and create the best places to give and receive care. This podcast is for the unsung hero of healthcare, the healthcare leader. We want you to know we see you and we'll be here for you each week. In this podcast, we're going to challenge healthcare's industry norms, flip limiting beliefs, and share proven strategies so you can be your best self at working at home, live and lead intentionally, and experience well-being and joy. We are glad you are here and look forward to sharing the journey with you. If you aren't totally convinced this podcast is for you, just listen to a few episodes and convince yourself. This is Tracy and Michelle. Welcome back to another episode of Healthcare's Missing Logic podcast. Yeah, it's a great day today. It is. Are yeah. you are you feeling resilient today, Tracy? Oh man, I'm feeling powerful. Ooh, strong. <laughs> <laughs> wow, look yeah, out, folks! I feel good. <laughs> like I knew that I would. <laughs> I was too. I was too. You know, we heard her the first time and it was awesome. And just having another conversation with her about, about, uh, you know, being resilient during these extraordinary times was inspiring again. Yeah. Well, I think what I really appreciated is, um, the comprehensive approach she took to really looking at resilience right now, you know, I mean, it's a buzzword, right? And it means a lot of different things to different people, which is what she uncovered. And, and I just think that's, that's, it's, Good to pay attention to those things right now, right? Don't go just go with what has been, but where are we headed and what does it mean? Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. I learned so much from from her and was so grateful when she accepted our invitation to come on to our podcast to talk about resilience because it's something like to your point, it's on it's a buzzword, it's on everyone's mind, but it's really deeper than that. People really do care about helping their colleagues in the workforce be resilient right now, because if we're not, it's not looking too good out there. And, and it's about resilience, both at the individual level and the team level. Yeah. So we had a great conversation. We did. We did. Why don't you introduce Shelly to our listeners? I am going to introduce you to Dr. Shelly. Dr. Shelly Cohen-Conrad is Director of the Center for Excellence in Collaborative Education, an initiative that promotes cross-disciplinary learning, research, collaborative practice, and service. And she's a professor at the University of New England School of Social Work. She graduated from Boston University in developmental psychology and received an MSW and PhD in social work from Simmons University in Boston. 
In 2014, she was inducted as a Distinguished Scholar and Fellow in the National Academies of Practice and the Social Work Academy. Shelley is a prolific writer and editor. Her book, Practice with Children and Families, A Relational Perspective, is used by social work educators in classrooms around the country. She is currently co-editing a book on the integration of the arts in social work practice. You'll find out more about that in our podcast. (laughs) Shelley's other publications and presentations focus on interprofessional education, resilience, power dynamics in health education, patient voice and death and grief and ambiguous losses. With other child-centered leaders in Maine, she founded Kids First, a nonprofit serving children and families managing parental separation, and Touchstone Psychotherapy, a multidisciplinary clinical practice. Shelley lives on the coast of Maine, where she enjoys gardening, reading, baking, British mysteries, hiking, traveling, listening to jazz, collecting art, and spending time with family and friends. Without further ado, here's our interview with Shelly. Welcome, Shelly, to Healthcare's Missing Logic Podcast. We're so excited to have you here today. Well, thank you for having me. This is very exciting. It's my first podcast. Oh, uh, <laughs> first, everybody. Oh, we're thrilled it's on ours, Shelly. That's, That's great. Right. That's right. That's amazing. All right. Well, one of the things that I think is so fascinating is how individuals choose their careers and especially healthcare careers, because there's usually a story there somewhere. So how about if we start with you sharing with our listeners kind of what was your journey into social work? Well, you know, I saw the question on the forum and I thought to myself, how am I going to answer this question? Because I started off in Russian literature. I'm, I'm Russian and Ukrainian descent, and I've always been fascinated with Russian literature. And I thought at 18, I was actually 17, uh, when I went off to college, I thought, I just want to immerse myself in Russian literature and teach, you know, Russian literature. And I was all excited about it. And, um, and then I realized how hard it was to make a living. Uh, just because you love Russian literature. So I put it aside as a hobby and a passion. And um, I went from New York University to Boston University and majored in developmental psychology. And I loved uh, the work I was doing. I was working with um, uh, toddlers and looking at communication and it was really thrilling. And got very interested in attachment theory, and I was mm-hmm. all set to go into a career of research um, in attachment and, and early childhood when, um, and had applied to a PhD program and discovered that you know, it was going to take a really long time to finish that. At the same time, I discovered I was actually having my first child, and I thought, hmm, kind of doesn't fit to go into an intensive PhD program to study attachment when you're going to have your own infant. So I took a little time off to think about it and decided that social work kind of was a great balance for me in, you know, working with children, which was was my primary area of practice, um, working for social justice and advocacy, which is also one of my passions and uh, serving the greater good. And 
ended up going to Simmons. I always joke, I, I went to Simmons twice. <laughs> you know, I went for my <laughs> master's degree and then I completed a PhD there. And that has, it's, I never look back. I mean, it's been the perfect profession for me. Um, but along that road and being in the field and working with children, I also got very, very interested in interprofessional teams and interdisciplinary working and um, started a couple of nonprofits along the way that um, worked with different sectors um, to improve the lives of children and families. Wow. Wow, that's amazing. It is. Look oh, at cool. all, all your contributions to the, the greater good Yeah, by those decisions. That's yeah. really awesome. Well, and everything just kind of, I like how everything kind of comes on your path, right? Yep. And it's a choice point, mm-hmm. right? You're just kind of like, okay, do I take this road or do I take this road? <laughs> well, yeah. you know, nothing ever stays the same, right? You know that. Oh, yes. So no. you no. have to be unafraid of change. And actually, you know, I'm one of those people who loves to think about what's next and what does the future hold rather than getting sort of panicky about it. Um, And so I love the flow and never thought I'd be a professor at some point in life, but here I am um, as professor and also a a director of a program. Um, So yeah. And who knows what's next? Yeah. Who knows? Well, and it sounds like you had a passion for teaching and a passion for research, and you do both, right? In your role yep. as a professor. Yep. So mm-hmm. you still get to do those things just mm-hmm. in a different way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, I miss awesome. the kids. Yeah. You know, I miss working with young children. And, um, and anytime I get an opportunity to consult, or I've written two books, actually, one book and a second edition on child and family practice. Um, and I do miss it. But, you know, mm-hmm. you're only one person at any given time. So you yeah. can only do the best you can do. That's yeah. right. Yeah. That's well, it's right. like leaving the it's like leaving the bedside as a nurse and respiratory therapist. There, you miss it, but, you know, you're going on to, contri- you know, make contributions in a in a, in a different way. So. Right. Right. And yeah. your work is fantastic. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Shelly, you gave a keynote at the National Academies of Practice or NAP's annual forum in March of this year, 2022, on resilience in extraordinary times. And it was just excellent. Tracy and I were both there. uh, And we were so inspired by your message. We knew right then and there we were going to ask you to be a guest on our (laughs) podcast. (laughs) Um, And I think to start... If you could just share with our listeners the approach that you took on this very important topic right now, representing the perspectives of many health professionals on the topic of resilience. Well, you know, it's funny. If you remember the talk, I started with a disclaimer that said, I actually am not an expert in this area. Mm -hmm. And I probably did more research for this talk uh, than any other that I've done in the last decade which says a lot. Um, So my approach to begin with was to ask myself, what's missing? What's missing from the common definition of resilience, which I I think I have here. I I actually, resilience is the ability to bend, but not break, to bounce back and even grow in the face of life experiences, which is a fabulous definition. Mm -hmm. I have no argument with that definition, but it felt to me, like some things were missing from it. The complexity of it 
was missing. And I also felt like having worked with so many people who live with suffering and live with losses and senseless uh, events. And of course, we're in the midst of COVID. We're in the midst of a war. We're in the midst of, you know, I won't go into all the politics of all of this that have been going on. But I thought to myself, I need to research what health professions across the spectrum, how they define resilience. And so that sent me on a very interesting journey because I felt like the different professions emphasize different things. And if I could just kind of put them all together, um, I would feel satisfied with a definition of resilience, which I can get to later. Um, but it was a great learning experience for me. I looked at everything from veterinary medicine to public health to allopathic medicine, osteopathic medicine, social work, OT, nursing, uh, physical therapy. I really did the gamut of seeing what is what does each one emphasize and and do it as as a thread throughout. Mm -hmm. So what I really wanted to do was to get people thinking. I I don't have the answers, but let's think together about what the most meaningful definition of resilience might be and to sort of be playful about it in some ways, but also deeply serious about it. The second thing I did was, um, you know, professional organizations aren't sufficient to know how people are thinking or feeling. They're a unique entity. And so I decided to send two survey questions out. We have a pretty big listserv here at the, at the center that I work with. And mm -hmm. I thought, oh, you know, no one's going to get back to me, but uh, <laughs> I'll just send these questions out. And the first one was, how do you define resilience? And the second one was, how has your definition of resilience been influenced by or changed by um, COVID and what's been happening during these very uncertain times? And I just got deluged mm. with responses. You know, everyone <laughs> from medical students to social work students to uh, staff uh, folks in public health. I mean, all kinds of people, diver you know, the diversity was really incredible to me. And so I used some of the quotes in the presentation, but mostly what I came away with, if I was to use it for a formal study, which at some point in my life I might do, um, is to see the theme. And the theme of it was, I used to believe this, and now I believe this, uh, you know, that there were definitely changes in how people conceptualized what they needed to do to be resilient individuals and what they needed to do to think about resilience, not only as something you do for yourself, but that is, is uh, institutional, systemic, team-based, looking at the broader picture. And then the last thing I did, which I really didn't talk about a lot at the presentation, but when I was pulling this together, I, I thought I really should mention this, is that, you know, my early research was really on re resilience, not so much specifically, but I spent time asking uh, parents of children 
who's, um, who sustain life-affecting uh, injuries or um, disabilities from illnesses. I asked them what they needed. And, um, you know, I've, I did two separate studies with these families. One was with families whose children survived those uh, injuries and one with families of children who died. And, um, and you know, overall, I, what I gleaned from that was the importance of relationships, the importance of um, being able to be, I, I remember one woman said, I need to have opportunities to lead and I need to have opportunities to lean. And, you know, that sort of duality of life experience was so important. And so I felt like that needed to go into my thinking about how I put this, this talk together. And um, so those were the major influences, plus, of course, obviously my own biases. And, and you know, I've been around a while. What can I say? <laughs> so, I, you know, having learned so much from the people that I've come to know as clients, as patients, as friends and colleagues and, you know, family members and my, you know, everybody's individual life circumstances. So that's um, that's how I built that voluminous <laughs> presentation. Uh, well, I just want to thank you again. I think, you know. There's a lot of presentations on resiliency and like that's a hot topic right now. And I think I just kind of sat down like I, I was obviously interested. This is something Tracy and I are very passionate about. Yeah. But I just remember feeling like this is such fresh, raw information because of how your intentionality that you put into it. And I just I just remember feeling I appreciated it through the whole presentation. And um, and it was just so fresh and there were patterns that were important for all of us. And so there were similarities between the different health professions and there were some differences too. And you did a great job just bringing that out and helping us all be aware of that. Um, it was awesome. Yeah, it was. Well, I yeah. think too, it was obvious you were very intentional. Yeah. This wasn't just, okay, here's what resilience is, right? Like, <laughs> I, that's what I just really appreciated about it too, was that intention. Like, wait a minute, I'm going to dive into this. Let's really see what's real today because nothing is the same as it used to be, right? We can't just go back yeah. to what was and that's what, and so such a comprehensive approach. So kudos well, to I, you. I really found myself being um, put off by cavalier definitions of resilience. You know, I would read them and I would be like, this is a person who hasn't experienced life or hasn't has been lucky to have a life that has been relatively smooth. And, um, you know, I also looked at a lot of the, the resilience researchers work to also follow it, you know, like Ann Mastin and some of the others who to watch how that changed as well. And um, I felt like we were adhering too much to old definitions, you know, the yeah. ones that, you know, um, just, you know, you can do it kind of definitions, which, you know, as a Mainer, you know, that's, that's sort of, I'm not actually a true Mainer, but I've lived in Maine long enough to, to feel like a real Mainer. It's sort of like, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, walk in the snow a million miles, um, yeah. <laughs> which is, which is all good. But, um, 
You know, I feel like there that sometimes, and one of the the students wrote this in her response. Sometimes those definitions do more harm than good because mm-hmm. they make people feel shame, they make people feel not good enough, they make feel people feel like failures. And if there is nothing else that I accomplished to do this talk, I wanted a people to walk away and never feeling like they have failed never feeling like they weren't good enough, that, that we all struggle and yes. we all had the potential to, to move ahead and be resilient, but you can't just do it by yourself. Right. So yeah. true. So mm-hmm. true. Well, you know, you did a lot of research. <clears throat> and so what do you think based on all of that research? Like, what do you believe is most important for our listeners to know when it comes to kind of, you know, burnout, moral distress, moral dilemmas, that just the ambiguity, right, that that we're dealing with right now as we move through COVID, you know, and experience it at the same time, because it's not gone yet, right? So we're we're still experiencing it at the same time, trying to move through that experience. So what do you think is most important for people to know based on what you uncovered? Well, I can't say there's anything most important. I would say there are a number of things that are important. And I would okay. say that some of the lessons we've learned can be applied also to some of the, you know, fallout of the pandemic, the financial crisis, how people are experiencing newly found financial stresses and strains the elevation of racism and partisanship, um, and of course, what's happening internationally and and watching before our eyes children being murdered by, you know, another country. So, Mm -hmm. um, so I think, I think there, I've got a couple of takeaways, and then I can talk a little bit about what matters if that works for you. Great. Yep. Perfect. Okay. So the first thing is that, you know, burnout and moral distress, and I think I talk quite a bit about an ambiguous loss in, in the talk, are normal, expectable reactions when you have situations that are, are unfair, uncertain, likely not to be resolved. Um, or if they are resolved, they're going to leave you know, traces of, of, of damages in their wake. And, you know, we're just talking about COVID here, but this is true of many, many, many circumstances. So that they're normative, they're not pathological, they're not diagnosable. Again, you're not a failure or a weak person. I also think that moral distress takes place when um, you lose your familiar. You know, you mm-hmm. lose what it is you've always known, what's always worked. Um, in 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 the nursing profession, you know, I feel particularly powerful for nursing and, and other health professions who are treating COVID patients. The fact that their usual procedures were not only not working, but they weren't allowed. And there was a, you know, dilemma inside a quandary of, do I follow the rules? Don't I follow the rules? I can't do what I normally do to help. And I think that's true of, of all of us, of many of us who are on the front lines or are working in any kind of helping or service profession. And that the last thing I would say that um, finding meaning, you know, to make sense of things that are senseless <laughs> 
is really important. And even if the meaning making is to say, there's no reason for this there, I can't, you know, this is a senseless circumstance. And, um, you know, I just need to put that in my plate that not everything is going to have a closure, you know, as part of preparing for today, I watched, um, Pauline Boss's most recent video. She's the person who developed 40 years ago the concept of ambiguous loss, and she's kind mm. of a hero of mine. Um, and, you know, she has she she talks a lot about not being able to expect closure all the time. And mm-hmm. and I think recent events and recent times have really made that clear. Um, so if you can't expect closure and there's going to be uncertainty. To be able to know that and to be able to live with it and 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 ride the wave of it, I think mm-hmm. is is yeah. our important lessons to learn. Um, and so those are sort of the the lessons I've learned anyway, or I think about in terms of burnout and 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 moral distress, and you know, and the concept of ambiguous loss, which really isn't talked about, to my estimation, enough. I mean, look at look at how many patients were lost that, you know, you didn't even know they weren't even your patients. And yet this overwhelming sense of loss grips you and you're told, well, you didn't know them why you're feeling that way. So it's kind of a collective mm-hmm. sense of loss for something that is hard to define. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting. I, what you said about moral distress and, um, you know, loss of the familiar and what we've been hearing so much lately is there are so many individuals new into the profession coming in right, right. at the, the peak, right at the start of COVID who don't have a familiar. This is all they know. Right. And yes. they're so disenchanted now with something they were so passionate about. And now they're in the situation, right? And they're really struggling with that. I just wondered if you had any thoughts about that. Well, I think I think particularly for young people who, you know, being in the world of education, what we're finding more and more is that students want the answer. You know, they don't they don't want to move to critical thinking. They don't want to move to problem solving. They want the answer. And I think mm-hmm. that that may not be true as much in the humanities and um, arts and sciences, but it is very true in healthcare. You know, and they've come into healthcare with a very, um, and I'm, I'm I don't I don't want to overgeneralize, but look in healthcare, you need to know how to fix things, right? <laughs> right. Yes, problem solve. Not a problem solve. Please know what you're doing. Please, you know. Yeah. Um, but I think that it's been extremely hard for them to deal with this in a way and, and discouraging, you know, they mm-hmm. came in to help, they came in to care, they came in to, you know, have their souls fed by what they're doing. Um, and uh, I think that's part of why we are seeing some of the great resignation is because some of the younger people are like, yep, this is not what I thought it would be. Um, and you know, my hearts go out to them because it isn't, it isn't, it's, it's kind of taken a, f- you know, we used to have a few complex cases yeah, and right. now we have many, right. many, many complex cases, uh, with no, with no clear answers. Mm-hmm. So, and then of mm-hmm. course it's all been very politicized. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's also very hard for for people working in the field because they have to kind of balance what they believe as healthcare providers with what they think they know about you know health and healthcare and public health and the situation that's out right. there being fed um, by various political. And I'm not saying one group or another. Right. I right. Think- I think everybody's been responsible for some Michigas, if I can use Yiddish. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, you know, just yeah. confusing. It is confusing. I mean, yeah. when you think back, and at least speaking for myself, it's it's stressful when you're a new practitioner and you're learning so much and 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 being a new leader. So you can really appreciate having everything that's been going on on top of it has been an awful lot. And we're always struck when people share that with us. Hi, it's Tracy. We are hearing from healthcare leaders from all over the country about how exhausted they are as they continue to try to lead and live in the new normal brought on by the COVID-19 pandemic. If you're like many of the leaders we talk with, what you are experiencing now is worse than the pandemic. It's gut-wrenching and it feels like it's never going to end. And your worst fear is that you're letting others down. That is why we developed the virtual Leadership Survival Bootcamp. Yes, you heard me right. These times call for a survival strategy that will get you through the next six months or more and enable you to create balance between your professional and personal life, grow as a leader, and have a positive impact on your team. Go over to missinglogic.com forward slash new dash events to join the wait list and be the first in line when the next registration opens. Well, and I think too that, you know, so you got the the people that this is new for them. Then you got... The the um the seasoned professional who's been around the block a few times, right? The leaders. And even there, like, do I have what it takes to persevere through this when they can't see an end in sight? Right. They're questioning, mm-hmm. can I stick it out? Do I have what it takes? You know? So it's just it's such a timely topic and such an important thing for all of us to be exploring and thinking about right yeah. what it really means. Yeah, I think it I think it's hit everybody and mm-hmm. it's challenged everybody's world beliefs or you know the beliefs that they've had in for their field and for their world and you know that there's a, enough you know feeling bad to go around for <laughs> for everybody and and you know everybody reacts to that in mm-hmm. in a different way. Um mm-hmm. And so you want to have sort of a grab bag of ways in which you deal with it. There is no one size fits all um, for anybody who's dealing with this kind of stress and strain. And as you said, I mean, I think I think we'd all like to believe that we're kind of through the worst of it. And, and maybe we are. But, you know, it's it's lingers. It isn't yeah. it isn't something that's suddenly going to be like, oh, over. We're done with that. It's affected everything. Yeah. Yep. It really has. Yeah. Well, Shelly, I'm curious with the research that you did do, um, what interventions or experiences seems to make the biggest difference with resilience? So, um, I have a little thing that I called what helps. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And, and I, and I tried to do this little <laughs> chart of, what makes a difference and, and, and what do you need to do, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a yep. difference between being sort of global and theoretical about it and then how do you apply it. Yeah. So I think, you know, I think, and I know coming from a social worker, this is probably like, oh, just a social worker, but there's no doubt to me that feeling valued 
having people feel valued, having people feel that they matter, um, and empathy are, are three things that we really need to do a better job at. Um, that, you know, I think at the talk I said, don't use the terminology of soft skills with me because these soft skills are skills. Mm-hmm. They are incredibly important to a normative healing process, whether, you know, something we know and understand, um, but they're entirely critical in situations where we're dealing with something we don't understand or something that's so massive. Um, And I think the healthcare system has not done due diligence in creating systems and institutional supports for healthcare workers Um, that if something happens, then there's a response. Um, But there's, there hasn't been an institutionalization of ongoing self-care and support with identified individuals, identified um, and regularly occurring support systems. In fact, you know, I think about some of the, um, you know, tacit sort of underlying messages that students get, and I'm assuming healthcare providers get as well, is that, you know, when you come to work, even when you don't feel good, you're you're really committed, right? Instead of... We really want to have a policy that we support our workers and our students when they're not feeling well. Please take care of yourself. That's the most important piece. So, you know, so that is really important. I think another thing that is sort of helpful is allowing people to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. You know, it seems like such a simple thing to say, but, you know, people don't feel safe being vulnerable around their employers, around their colleagues, because we have in this country and probably others made it a weakness to be vulnerable rather than a strength, to be able to admit that you're feeling scared, to be able to admit that you're you're sad, um, that you don't know what to do. Those are things that we need to give people permission to do. Um, at the same time, we want to support people in in doing their jobs well and being committed, but again, this is a this is this a complexity of this that that it ha- you have to have both. Mm-hmm. You have to have that and it, and it, willingness to acknowledge that you've maybe made a mistake and need some support or asking for help. Um, those are qualities that I don't think we've done a good job. You know, when you think about how we're taught. Um, and the pedagogies and methodologies, if someone makes a mistake or has the wrong answer, yep. you know, often they're ridiculed uh, rather than saying, well, good for you for trying. Let's see, you know, what other people think, you know, that kind of pedagogy. Um, so I think those are really important things. I also think flexibility, thinking mm-hmm. about how, you know, the workforce works. Um, is Should we have the same workforce uh Hours for people who are, you know, have young children versus those who have no, you know, just having a a more futuristic mindset of how it could be Um, and thinking, you know, thinking about how it could work better. So I think from an individual uh, basis, I think what to do (laughs) is um, to try really hard not to 
remain isolated, to not stay within yourself, um, to take a chance and reach out. And, you know, you don't have to be alone to feel alone um, when you don't feel you have that collegial support around you or that administrative support around you. So creating cultures where people feel okay to mm-hmm. uh, reach out and to say, you know, I'm, I'm feeling isolated, I'm feeling scared. You know, culture change is hard. And, you know, I, I have a slide that I use in some other presentations that talk about change. And they say, it, the, the slide is, it's funny, I should have printed it out. It's, it's you know, when people were asked whether they um, would want change or they said, um, you know, I can't answer that question, you know, can we talk about something else? You know, sort of like not even being able to address the concept of change because change is really scary to them. But that's what we need is we need an umbrella institutional culture change Mm-hmm. Um, that permits these kinds of, of um, behaviors. Um, everything I read reinforced the importance of relationships, yep. um, relational practice, relational um, leadership, um, m- you know, making sure that someone has your back, uh, knowing there are people you can rely on consistently. Again, don't isolate and, and have yourself being alone. And then the last thing is that, you know, to be able to view crisis, you know, there was a outburst of the arts during COVID, mm-hmm. you know, everything from little kids putting rainbows in windows and on the, their sidewalks to unbelievable murals and artworks, um, theater, everything uh, is, was incredible. So also to think about how you can use creativity mm-hmm. to um, work through some of the stresses that are there. So those are just some ideas. And again, I want to re- repeat that I'm not an expert, yeah. but some of this data that I'm uh, giving you came from um, not so much traditional research articles, but I actually talked to some health administrators at some of our facilities here in Maine, and many are now doing um, surveys with their healthcare staff to find out what it is that they need. Um, And these were some of the points that came up very, very strongly. Mattering, being heard, having a voice, um, Mm -hmm. you know, and and being recognized for their value. Sure. Yeah, that makes total sense. And thanks for bringing that. I think... um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Connection is always so important, right? Staying connected to each other and in relationship with each other. It's, I think to your point, when you pull away and isolate, things seem so much worse, right? And when we're working with groups, the one thing we hear is just, oh my gosh, I'm not alone. Oh my gosh, I'm not the only one, right? You you tend to think I'm the only one that feels this way. Everybody else is doing fine, you know? But when we bring them together and they're sharing, right? They're like, that's like the the highlight it of is. their time together is that they they have that validation that there's not something wrong with them, 
right, that other people are having challenges and experiencing those things too. So I really appreciate you bringing that forward. It's it's kind of the Facebook phenomenon, you know, yeah, you go yeah. on Facebook and everybody looks like they have perfect lives yeah. except for you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, I don't have Facebook. Yeah. Well, and it's exacerbated <laughs> in healthcare, I think, because, right, there's that, you know, um, you don't want to acknowledge that you're you don't have it all together, right? Yes. Because you're caring for other people, right? There's it's just it's challenging um, for many yeah. of the leaders yes. and providers. And, now you talked at the end of your presentation about team resilience and um, how important that is, along with individual resilience, and that's a polarity, right? Is the individual resilience and then leading to the team resilience, and again, it's that you're not alone kind of a thing, and we're all connected in this. And um, and so, can you just tell us, tell our listeners, um, how you define team resilience, and why why is that so important, not just at the individual level, but at the team level? Well, it's, it's actualizing everything I just said in, in, within the context of the, of the team. So it, it is nurturing the capacity in team members to support, not compete, but to support with one, one another to, to be able to collectively manage pressures um, and to share the burden. You know, I can't yeah. tell you how often when we're doing our our team immersions here at the university um, with with groups of students. We group in eight students from eight different health professions in a number of teams, and they do cases together. And I can't tell you how often at the end what we get, and particularly for medical students, um, the best part of it for them is feeling like they can share the burden with others. Yeah, and yeah. that really needs to be intentionally nurtured in the development of, of resilient teams. And, and what I would say about that is that, um, you know, that it has to happen even when there isn't a problem, you know, that yes. it is about inviting participation. It's about um, all ideas are good ideas, but they may not be used. You know, it's about mm-hmm. making sure um that you're empowering everybody on the team to do their very best. Um, and um, that that's how teams become buoyant and resilient. The other thing, and I should have mentioned it before, is the concept of equity. Um, I think equity is an essential component of resilience, both individually as part of a workforce and um, and as part of, as a member of a team, mm-hmm. and you know it that everybody needs to feel they have an equal say, they have equal power, they have equal leverage, they have equal access to leadership and decision yep. making. Um, that that may be fluid, um, but if you if there isn't equity shared across professions, uh, across groups, across race, across gender. Um, then you're never going to really build resilience. Right. Um, and yep, so, um, and I, you know, I really credit Hossein Khalili and his teams, yes. um, his writing teams. And, and uh, I've, I've had the pleasure now of working with him and, and I'm going to be writing with him now, which, and, and other folks on, on those teams, which is very exciting to me. But this idea really came from a lot of reading from him 
And I put together as a graphic. <laughs> I don't know if you can see it. I'm going to show it to you because I never <laughs> do stuff like this. My, but it's. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep, got it? Yep. <laughs> and I'll just read you the components I put down for team resilience. And okay. um, the first one is positivity. You know, to come in positive and thinking about how you're going to work well together as opposed to coming in with, oh, my God, I can't believe I have to work with <laughs> X. Fill right? in the blank. <laughs> right. Um, adaptability, you know, not being linear, thinking about, you know, how do we work this? And if it doesn't go the way we think, how do we adapt to that? How are we flexible? Um, emotional, psychological awareness. Um, feeling if someone's faltering, feeling if someone's lacking confidence, being aware of those things, not ignoring them or avoiding them. Um, as I've said before, both willingness to acknowledge vulnerability and um, a sense of mattering. Um, and then finally, willingness to ask for help within your team, you know, to be able to say, look, I don't know a lot about meds, uh, but you do. And, you know, how do you think this might be affecting my patient? Um, so those are the qualities that I feel are really helpful to team resilience, really maintain it and nurture it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, those are wonderful. They're great. They're great. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, asking for help those elements that all comes back to the relationships because relationships, right. Is about trust, right? So it all comes back to those relational elements as well, right? You're, you're with your team, the stronger, the relationship, the stronger, the understanding yeah. of each other and some of those other <clears throat> things, right. About we're all doing the best we can. Let's just, you know, keep them in, enables people to ask for help. It creates that environment. I think it comes back to the culture, creating the culture right. of it's okay. We're all doing the best we can. Let's just keep moving, learn from each other, grow, evolve. Right. And especially during this time when so much of it's new to everybody, right. There's no playbook for this. There there's, you know, <laughs> it's all new and the challenges they're facing now post COVID are almost worse than COVID was in some regards, right. For some of the individuals. So. Yeah, I, I agree. Great. And, and willingness to um, think forward, Yes, you know, and not thinking, Oh, everything's going to go back to the familiar, to the things that we, you know, always knew, but, you know, looking at, at, at what could, what the possibilities are. Um, and planning for them. You know, the World Health Organization definition of resilience really speaks to, um, you know, planfulness, being thinking about what happens if, as opposed to just being reactive. And I think we've been in a place of um, being too comfortable with, the, with what we already know, when we certainly know that everything always changes and the even theories and medical procedures, everything changes. So we've got to really activate that sense of foresight thinking um, and putting it together. Yeah, we would concur. We, we think this is an opportune time to kind of seize the moment to make changes based on you know, the work that you're doing and just what we're talking about here today. Why would you want to go back to the way that it was? Now's the time for us to just reflect and what are we learning? And 
how do we move forward and make the changes to have more resilience and better teamwork and the things that are really important to us. And and there, there are some things you want to hang on to that are, you know, that will anchor an organization, anchor an individual that, you know, those are, there's, that's the stability Mm -hmm. part, right? The know what is important to maintain and to hold on to our mission, our, right? Like our values, the principles that guide who we are, what our organization is all about. And at the same time, then recognize what now, what, what needs to change, what needs to evolve, what, what is okay to let go of that it's not serving us anymore. Kind of that it's the both and of stability and the change. change. I um do we have time for me to read one of the responses I got from my survey? Sure. Sure. So this this came from a, a medical student and I just thought it was pretty amazing. And not you probably heard it at the talk, but it was I used to view resilience in a very short term lens. Someone who is resilient during a particular situation. But since the pandemic began, my education has expanded to understand how resilience is something that is anything but short term um, and static. It is ever changing, has many contributing factors and to speak to long term health outcomes. And I I just thought that was beautiful um, for someone who's being trained in a way where where there are absolutes and truths. And to really be saying, now, wait a minute, if we haven't learned anything, we've learned that we need to be thinking ahead and thinking about how we keep this thing going, how we keep resilience going and how we nurture it. So I just, I just loved that. Yeah. 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 I do too. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Okay, Shelly. So now it's time for the missing questions. So these are the oh, questions. No. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> these Don't are the panic. questions you didn't get. Uh, but this is, you know, we get to know you professionally. I think we learned a lot about you, about how you think and the work that you do. And uh, so this is something for our listeners to get to know the personal side of Shelly as well. So I'm going to ask you a couple of questions and then Tracy's going to close with a question as well. So you got this, just relax. And the first question is, who is your favorite artist or type of art? Oh my goodness. I can't believe you started with that because I am an art collector and it's my passion. It's one of my great passions in life. Um, I don't have a favorite artist, um, but I do love super realism I love um, Impressionism. I like Surrealism. <laughs> um, and I like I like art. You know, the, I, people ask me how I choose my artwork. I mean, you can sort of see in the background mm-hmm. here, and there's yeah. a lot of art around this office. They ask me, how do you select the pieces that you buy? And, and I say, you know, it just comes from the heart. Yeah. Something that moves me. It could be a photo, a realistic black and white photograph. It could be a completely wacky abstraction, um, but I know it because I feel it. And um, so, but I am very, very passionate about art. Oh, that's awesome. That's great. All right. Second question is, what's one thing on your bucket list that you haven't crossed off yet? 
Well, it's so funny because we were when we were on Martha's Vineyard this weekend, I turned to my husband of 50 years and I said, you know, I've always wanted to fly a plane. And, and he looked at me and he said, I never knew that about you. You know, a small plane, you know, uh-huh. one of those prop planes. Like I wanted to look like, you know, uh, wear, you know, a goofy helmet. And I just, the, <laughs> the, the art of flying or being up in the air, real, like I, I haven't been in a hot air balloon or a helicopter. I'd like to do both of those things. Um, so um, I don't know whether I ever will, <laughs> but those are things that are on definitely on my bucket list. Oh, that's, that's so great. interesting. That's great. Well, yeah. let us know if you do. Yeah, really. <laughs> I, I will. I will. <laughs> okay. So, you know, we work with healthcare leaders and really helping them to understand and develop a competency around polarity intelligence and really understand the role polarities play in their lives and how to think about both. And we've mentioned a number of those during our time together. Um, but one of the principles of polarities is oftentimes we have a preference for one pole a little bit more than the other. There's nothing right or wrong about right. it. Um, it's just kind of what we tend to lean towards, right? It's maybe a little bit more in our comfort zone or the things that we kind of lean towards and value. Um, and the reason we bring it up is sometimes that can cause a blind spot for you, right? Because you tend to want to support that pole a little bit more <laughs> than you would the other, right? So we just wanted to ask you, uh, given a certain polarity, which I'll tell you in just a minute, what is your preference poll? What do you think your preference poll? Don't overthink it. Just kind of what's your first response? Teaching or learning? Oh, wow. I think learning. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm a complete and utter dork. <laughs> and I, I love to learn about as many things as I can possibly find out about. So I do love teaching, but, you know, I, I just love learning. And um, I think it keeps you fresh and, um, and, and keeps you up with science and young people. I just, I love it. I love yeah. learning. Yes. Yeah, that's awesome. That's great. Yeah, I'm great. a learner too. I yeah. like to learn too. That would be my where I would lean. And I as like well. to teach. Yep. See, Michelle and I we're just a walk we're in polarity. Opposite. We're opposite. In just about every everything. Way. Pretty well, much. Well, that's why you work so well together. But, <laughs> exactly. You know, you you can't be a teacher without being a learner. No, you True. can't. You need both. Yeah, it's a both. You, you absolutely need both. I I think I've learned a ton from my students. Yep. Um, yep. And hopefully. They've learned something from me, <laughs> and they um, and they and they often say you often teach what you need to learn the most. So it's the, definitely it's an and in both for sure, for sure. Well, it's just been a pleasure. It has been as we knew it oh, would be, yeah. and I actually have a prediction: someone else is going to call you to be on their podcast I after being so on ours. Too. Oh yeah, <laughs> this is oh, just oh, the dear. first. This is just the first, Shelley. <laughs> oh no! Oh no! Well, it's been a delight for me, and um, I really love talking about this subject, the subject that I had not enough knowledge of before March 4th, (laughs) and and, uh, I appreciate you having me. Thank you so much. You're You're so welcome. welcome. You're so welcome. And for our listeners, thank you for tuning in again, and thanks for listening to another episode of Healthcare's Missing Logic podcast, and uh, stay safe and healthy, and we will see you next time. Yep, see you next time. 
hope you enjoyed this episode of Healthcare's Missing Logic podcast, now a top-rated podcast for healthcare leaders. Please share this podcast with other healthcare leaders and anyone else you think would benefit. We are certain that if you found value in it, they will too. If you haven't already done so, please hit that subscribe button so you don't miss any episodes. And also, it would mean the world to us if you took a quick moment to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast player. It helps to get the word out about our podcast and incredible guests. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel if you want to watch our podcasts. You can also follow us on our Missing Logic social media channels, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Until next time.